everybody, and welcome to episode 437 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show. I'm excited to have you here this time around because I've got a really cool... You know, I say this every week. Really. I do. The bottom line is this, and I think you guys and gals know this about me by now. I love all these movies. Even if it's a movie that might have some questionable production values, might not have the best acting, might have a limited script, might be made by people who really were probably better off selling fertilizer, I still find something to love and enjoy about these films. It's one of the things about being a monster kid, I think, that we are willing to accept movies that have monsters that have these fantastic elements and still find something to find joy in, even if it is something like, well, a movie in which the filmmakers probably would have been better off selling fertilizer. I just love all these films. Now, that all said, the movie that we're talking about this week, I didn't have to look too hard to find things that I liked about it. This is a really good flick, and it's from the 70s. I bring that up because here at Monster Kid Radio, you know, we've talked a little bit about toe dipping into the 1970s, and sometimes I'm kind of resistant to that because I feel like once you get past 1968, the horror genre gets a little, um, I don't know, more modern than most traditional Monster Kid fare. But, you know, there are plenty of movies from the 70s and maybe even in the 80s and, dare I say, 90s that still have that Monster Kid quality. And this week's movie is one of those films. We're talking about 1973's Terror in the Wax Museum. This was a movie that I had not seen before. It was brought to my attention by friend of the show, fellow podcaster, and somebody who loves her pierogies, Kelly Hagaboom. She's going to be on the show here in a little bit to talk with me about Terror in the Wax Museum. That's not all that's happening this week. Of course, we've got another bedtime story from the amazing Professor Frenzy. That's coming up, plus Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Before we get into all of that, though, I want to go ahead and I want to address something that came up since the last week's episode. Last week, I finally presented the recording that I took of Dwight Kemper at Monster Bash earlier this year in which he read his short story, Dysfunctio Cerebri. I was pretty pleased with how it turned out. I thought it sounded pretty good. I think Dwight's story is phenomenal. Really good read. And I managed to leave a flub in the final recording, and I apologize for that profusely. Dwight was actually the one who brought it to my attention, so, oh, man, Dwight, I am so sorry that I left a little bit of a blooper in there. So, to correct this, not in this episode, but later this week on the Monster Kid Radio feed, I will be releasing Dwight's story again, this time properly edited, just as a standalone episode. So that'll be coming out probably sometime over the weekend. So stay tuned. Keep watching the Monster Kid Radio feed. It'll be coming your way. All right, let's get on to the rest of this episode. Please fasten your seatbelts and return your tray table. It's up. You know what? No. You want to listen to this episode sans seatbelt? That's fine. I mean, unless you're driving, then you should be wearing. You know what? Let's just get on with it. Phantom of the Opera. Behind the cavernous walls of a great theater, behind the gaiety and make-believe, there lurks evil, an unspeakable evil. The Phantom of the Opera. The motion picture screen's unrivaled masterpiece of the macabre. 
Only once in every generation comes a tale of such classic horror to hold audiences forever captive with its sheer fascination, its overwhelming terror, its frightening power. The Phantom of the Opera. Beneath his mask, the grotesque face of unimaginable horror. But within his heart, the desperate desire for beauty and love. Drama to thrill you and chill you as no other motion picture ever has. In color, The Phantom of the Opera. Have you heard Black Clock Audio Tales as a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a whole short story or a novel, a chapter or two at a time? Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org. Thank you. Behind the blazing eyes of X, you will see demon forces that seek to probe the scientific unknown. Beware. Beware the stare of X. 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 One CC under the right lid, one CC under the left. Suddenly he possessed X-ray vision, power to see through clothes, flesh, walls, to the very ends of the universe. X, a fantastic adventure into the unknown, starring Ray Milland in his most challenging role since his Academy Award winning Lost Weekend. X, the motion picture with a theme so unique it could only be called X, filmed in Pathé Color and Spectorama. X, the man with the X-ray eyes, is the different picture this year from American International. You won't ever forget it. X, X. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Madness at Manderville. It is from Tales from the Crypt, number 18, the June-July issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Harvey Kurtzman. So sit back and relax while I tell this tale of madness. Mrs. Marion Mander gave the servants the night off to have dinner alone with her husband. She tells him that she feels as if something was changing in the way her thoughts worked ever since they lost their son Billy in an accident. She asked her husband Tom if he understood. Tom thought that making dinner was too much for her in her strained condition. She agreed, saying that her nerves were shot. Even their dog frightened Marion. Tom put her to bed with a sedative so she could sleep. Hours later, Marion woke up screaming about lights coming through the bedroom window. Tom looked outside but didn't see anything. The next morning, she said she heard a terrible wailing sound, but Tom did not. He was terribly worried about his wife's sanity. After a day at the office, Tom came home and thought she looked better, and the couple went to bed. In the middle of the night, Marion got up to get a drink of water, but was shocked to find a butcher knife soaked with blood on the bedroom floor. 
The pair followed the bloody trail and found their dog Rusty dead with his throat cut. Marion believed she was going mad, and Tom promised to have Dr. Brenner over first thing in the morning. When the doctor arrived, they explained the situation to him. Brenner said that it's a very dangerous situation and anyone that has these symptoms should be committed. Tom drove his wife to the sanitarium, where Mrs. Mander signed commitment papers. Tom insisted on the best care possible for his poor wife. But when it came time to take the patient into their care, they came for Tom Mander, not Marion. Are you mad, Tom cried? You're making a terrible mistake. It turns out that the doctor discovered the lights and wail that Marion reported did happen, according to the Mander's neighbors. It was Mr. Mander that wasn't perceiving reality correctly. While Marion was under a nervous strain, it was Tom's mind that had snapped. The end. I hope you enjoyed that head-spinning story. This tale started off as a straightforward insanity story and took an interesting turn. As with most EC tales, there's going to be a twist, and I couldn't help but try to figure out what the story had in store as I read through it. The thing that's different in this one, though, is that Tom isn't a traditional bad guy. He isn't trying to frame his wife or gaslight her into thinking she's crazy. So he doesn't get the traditional EC comeuppance. This is a more straightforward twist. There's a little dialogue fussiness at the end as the doctor explains the twist to Marion and therefore us. Kurtzman's art is usually pretty simple, but he knows when to crank up the drama. There's a scene where Marion is frightened of the lights in the bedroom window. She looks terrified. The scene where the couple find the butcher knife has the knife ominously in the foreground while Tom embraces his wife in the background. Not only is it a good artistic panel, it's good story pacing. If you're interested in a copy of Tales from the Crypt Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy. This is Whitewood, Massachusetts. A young girl, a stranger, has come to Whitewood to do research. She has come, she thinks, to study. Leave Whitewood. Leave Whitewood tonight, I beg of you. Leave before it is too late. In spite of this warning, the girl lingers on. The guests are over 300 years old.
human blood keeps them alive forever. Barlow. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. of the mummy's tomb. A bandage and bone monster stalking the cryptomaniacs who defiled its tomb of terror. And the Gorgon. A she-monster who turns living, screaming flesh into silent stone. It's a two-for-one monster bazaar. Two terrific terrors for the price of one. With the never-before-offered special free bonus. Black stamps. Of your favorite monsters for the first 10,000 people in line. It's the curse, the curse of the mummy's tomb and the gorgon. He said the gorgon, both in petrifying color, you know, they will frighten you. Yeah. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting to that most wonderful time of the year, the month of October, the month of Halloween, the month of all things fall and all things great and warm and fuzzy and just wonderful. All the wonderful things that we care about when it comes to being a monster kid is happening in October. And for years, I've made no secret that I view the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon as kind of the official start of the Halloween season for me. It happens the first weekend of October, and it's happening again this year, October 4th, 5th, and 6th at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon. I really recommend that you get your hands on your tickets as soon as possible because they almost always sell out. You can find out more about the festival at hplfilmfestival.com. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Some things that you as a monster kid might care about when it comes to the Lovecraft Film Festival. Special guests, Victoria Price. Yeah, that Victoria Price, Vincent Price's daughter. And scheduled special guest, Roger Corman. He signed up to be there as well. And uh, wow, I can't wait for this year's festival. I've had a chance to meet Victoria. She is wonderful. I've talked about her on the show before. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know what this woman means to me. She's just amazing. 
Roger Corbin, I've never had a chance to meet, and I'm really looking forward to meeting him as well. And, you know, I'm hesitant to say this because it was mentioned this past weekend at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival preview presentation at the Rose City Comic Con. But Brian and Gwen Callahan, the people who run the show, have been a little cagey when they talk about what's coming to this year's festival. I mean, some movies have been announced. They are going to be showing The Haunted Palace, which has me extremely excited, and Color Out of Space, the new adaptation from director Richard Stanley starring Nicolas Cage. My interest is certainly peaked. There's a ton of incredible short films lined up as well. If the short films that were shown during the preview of the Rose City Comic Con are any indication of what we're going to see, well, it's going to be hard to get all the short films in because there are some incredible ones lined up. You know what? They mentioned it at the Rose City Comic Con. I'm going to mention it here. As the presentation was wrapping up, Brian and Gwen Callahan wanted to give away some free t-shirts. They also run Psycho Graphics, where they make t-shirts and baby doll tees and other shirts. Uh, everything has to do with like Halloween and horror and you know ancient Egypt, occult type stuff, Lovecraft, Cthulhu, all of it. And to give away the t-shirts, they were asking trivia questions, mostly about Lovecraft, which seemed appropriate. Now, the Haunted Palace came up as the answer to a particular question. I don't remember the exact question, but it was the answer which led into another question that Brian asked towards the end there. And the question was basically, you know, the Haunted Palace starred Vincent Price. Well, Vincent Price was in another movie with another director and the seats were buzzing. What was the name of the process involved with that film? The film, of course, being The Tingler. And oh, by the way, Brian says, we're going to be showing that at the Hollywood during the Lovecraft Film Festival with Percepto in place. I shouted from the back of the room, really? Because <laughs> man, that's gonna be awesome. I almost had an opportunity to experience the Tingler with Percepto a couple years ago because the Hollywood theater was going to bring it in completely independent of the Lovecraft thing. They were just going to show the Tingler and they were gonna rig up all the seats. But last minute, the devices they needed to rig up the seats didn't arrive so they started giving refunds on tickets and I you know I did ask for a refund because as much as I love the movie really the draw was having the theater shock my bottom so to speak while the tingler was playing on screen knowing that they're trying to do it now with the Lovecraft Film Festival man fingers and tentacles crossed that everything gets put in place for it because oh man oh whoa it's gonna be awesome I don't think I've ever seen a William Castle movie in the theater with the gimmick in place. I mean, outside of the gimmicks that are actually part of the film, things like the punishment pole in Mr. Sardonicus, that sort of thing. So this ought to be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Another reason I'm looking forward to this year's Lovecraft Film Festival, Dominique Lamsey's is going to be doing a presentation on the wardrobe of the Roger Corman-directed Poe cycle of films. That's going to be sweet. Chris McMillan will be moderating a panel that has to do with the, well, what-ifs behind whether or not Roger Corman had made more Lovecraft adaptations after he made The Haunted Palace. And we will be recording an episode of Monster Kid Radio live. I know I always bring my recorder and I always get content, but... This time around, we're actually going to be doing it in front of a live, not really in a studio, but still pretty darn special audience. 
at the Lovecraft Film Festival. What day will that be happening? I don't know. They haven't announced the official schedule yet, but it is happening, well, in about three weeks' time. So if you're in the area, you know the drill. Look me up. I'd love to meet you. In addition... I just got a lot to share here, but I'm excited because in addition to this, the Dark Arbor Lodge, which is a group here in Portland, will be presenting Insmith, a one-night Lovecraftian art event. It is happening October 4th at Sam's Billiards from 4 to 9 p.m., $10 to get in. And basically what this is, is a walk through the story of Shadow over Insmith. It's an immersive art show. You're going to see incredible artwork, you're going to experience an incredible atmosphere, and you're going to hear some pretty cool sounds because somebody I know whose name rhymes with Sherik Shem Shook is designing the sound. So, if you're interested in knowing more about that, go to InsmithPortland.com. That's where you can learn more. And just to kind of tell you a little bit more about who's involved... Charles Babbage, he's been here on the show before. He's an incredible artist. Chris Wallace, the man behind the effects of the Gremlins. Randy Bowen, yeah, that Randy Bowen, the guy who used to be Bowen Designs. Back in the late 90s, he was designing mini busts for Marvel Comics. I probably have a couple tucked away in my closet back in the guest room. Should probably dig them out and make a video about them for my Comic Nostalgia YouTube channel. But these are just some of the artists that are going to be involved. You can learn more about all the artists that are going to be involved by going to the events website again. That is insmithportland.com. Of course, you can find links to all of this in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the tingler. Panic sweeps London from end to end. Even Scotland Yard is baffled. But two men of intrepid daring fight back. It's Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best. Battling fiction's most fearsome themes in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Co-starring Boris Karloff as Robert Louis Stevenson's fabulous double demon. Mr. Hyde will kill him. Mr. Hyde will kill him. With Helen Wesson, Craig Stevens, and Reginald Denny. Bud and Lou are tearing up the town, trapping the beast among a bevy of beauties. Adding turmoil to terror in a house of horrors that would frighten even Frankenstein. Come on, Winner! We can catch your master! Give me a hand! And what a riot when they get funny notions from deadly potions. Hey, Slim. What? Those guys must be seeing things. Pay no attention then, they're drunk. There's always a way of. Sticky! 
mind of man is the servant of evil. Instruments of torture are always much the same wherever one goes. Our ancestors had imaginations that were truly diabolical. The Virgin of Nuremberg, the most efficacious instrument of torture. The most desirable woman. <laughs> Terrible punisher of the Virgin of Nuremberg. Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our sergeant-at-arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of, and the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles, so, no way to call for help. Uh, thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. Days to come, you will pray for death. Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. <laughs> At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al? Would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual. Thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found. Monster Kid Radio Hits, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Let's continue our issue-by-issue look of movies covered with issue number six from February of 1960. He is seen roaring on the cover, and he is the main feature of the 6th FM, the classic King Kong. This 11-page, 14-photo article starts with this clever short synopsis of the film. He was a giant who towered 50 feet in his own kingdom. But Samson-like, this super simian met a doll-like Delilah, 
and lost his life amongst the skyscrapers when the steel and glass jungle called civilization chopped him down to size. The article starts with a brief account of how the movie was imagined by its creators. A lengthy quote from producer Marion C. Cooper is climaxed with this comment. Suppose there existed a tropical island, unvisited by man and unchanged by time, that still harbored one of those monstrous animals which roamed the earth before the existence of man. An ape came to mind. Dinosaurs and pterodactyls of the Jurassic Age were all right as menacing influences on our imaginary skull island, but they were clumsy and inhuman, whereas apes are similar to man. The article continues. So a gorilla, eight times normal height, grew in the mind of Cooper and his associate, Ernest B. Shozak. Before they were through, 30 bears sacrificed their skins so that audiences could be scared out of theirs, and six men got the weirdest jobs of their careers, bunching together inside the 36-foot chest of Kong to operate the 85 motors that animated his six-and-a-half-foot face with its 10-inch teeth and foot-long ears. We then read about some of the details of the production, focusing on the work of animator Willis O'Brien. Finally, we see what the 1933 critics thought and take a look at the popularity of Kong on TV. The article concludes with these comments from FM's editor. So immense was Kong's regional popularity on the telesets that he and his son Kiko have been called back for repeated encores. He and Mighty Joe Young now frequently appear together on the same marquee. Bay Ray's screams have become as familiar to today's teeners as Tarzan's jungle yell. Save this article for 15 years and see if what I predict isn't true. That boys and girls just being born this year in 1975 will accept trips to the moon and Mars matter-of-factly, but will still get a bong out of King Kong. And you know something, chumps? That gray-haired old gentleman there in the audience applauding with the rest and with a tear in his eye as we watch Kong die. That may very well be me. So don't be shy about coming over to speak to me and let me know how you liked the 100th issue of Famous Monsters. Right after the article, we have a new item available from Captain Company, a King Kong bank. For only $2, you can own an 8-inch Kong, which would hold $20 of coins. King Kong has been mentioned many times in Monster Kid Radio, but got the full MKR treatment in episode 68 with Chris McMillan, and it was also covered in number 355, also with Chris and Dominique Lamsey's. King Kong was the 22nd film covered by Monster Kid Radio. The only other film mentioned in issue 6 was George Powell's The Time Machine. Its preview covered 7 pages and included 9 photos, most featuring the monstrous Morlocks. It begins with this. What is time? A weekly magazine, some bright student answers. Give that goof off time to cool off by staying after school one hour and writing on the blackboard 100 times. I'm a clock-eyed cuckoo bird. Nor is time what you have on your hands when you have a watch on your wrist. The late great Ray Cummings, who was at one time an assistant to Thomas Alva Edison himself, once defined time as what keeps everything from happening at once. The late, greatest H.G. Wells took time off from writing about the Invisible Man and Dr. Moreau's Island of the Lost Souls and the War of the Worlds to tell the terrifying tale of a traveler to the year 802,701. And Herbert George Wells' pal, George Powell, has put this remarkable adventure on celluloid. The article continues with a brief synopsis of the film, including details taken from H.G. Wells' book. The Time Machine was the 96th movie covered by Monster Kid Radio, and features special guest Christopher Page. You can find it in the archive. It is episode 244. 
That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This is Kenny for MKR. We'll be back with more next week. Adios. supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me! She hated me! Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. this program to bring you the following special announcement. The world's first horror head transplant has failed, and five brain donors have died in the experiment. Now you can see it all at your local theater in Beast of Blood, and on the same show, Curse of the Vampires, both brand new in gory color. You'll see a mad fiend transplant human heads in the Cave of Horrors, and encounter stunning, screaming, shocking terror as it lives. A monster's head detached from its body, causing savage and inhuman destruction. More fantastic than science, more shocking than fantasy, the creature without a head, controlled by an insane artificial brain, Beast of Blood. Don't miss Beast of Blood and Curse of the Vampires, both rated GP. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. 
You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I love movies set in wax museums, and to find another one that I had never even heard of is kind of exciting. And when Kelly Hagabum from B-Movie BFFs <laughs> mentioned this one to me or asked me about this one, I thought, you know what? I got to look at it. I got to watch it. And I got to have Kelly on the show to talk about it. How's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm, I'm good. It's been a long time since we've had you on the show. It has. Yes. Like a, it was B-Movie BFFs. And I will make sure there's a link in the show notes to that at bmoviebffs.com. So make sure that listeners can check that out. It's a blog where you talk about, well, B-movies. So, yes. Uh, we had you on the show a while back to talk about The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Yes, we did. Because you're a fan of Ray Milland. I am a big fan of Ray Milland, and I'm going to discipline myself today because there are a lot of amazing actors in the film we're going to discuss, and I do not want to focus on just the one, but I am like OG Ray Milland fan. Love him. You know, when I had you on the show before, like right beforehand, I went on a a reading binge trying to find anything I could find about Ray and I have his autobiography here. Oh, cool. But I never read it. Yeah. Well, it's hard. there's some, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you find the time to do all that you do. So well, sleep is for the week. Yeah. Yeah. Put that on the back burner for sure. There's no downside. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have the book and uh, when I bought it at the used bookstore, I didn't know this, but when I got it home, uh, somebody had actually cut out Ray's obituary and put it in the book as well. Oh. Which I don't know what I, I don't know if that makes it a better thing or I don't know. Wow. Sad. I, yeah. either way. I need to read the book though, because I do like everything I've seen him in. I just don't know very much about him. Yeah. Yeah, he had quite a career. And and of course, in our sort of wheelhouse, people are always talking about his sort of end of career films. But when you go looking, I mean, he just had some amazing work under his belt. I mean, one of my favorite movies with him is A Panic in Year Zero. I, I just mm. love that film. And he directed that too, I think, didn't he? I think that was his first directorial. Uh, no, I think that might have been A Man Alone, the Western. So yeah, I, but I believe you're right. Yeah, I mean, he directed, he acted, uh, he won an Oscar. I mean, he's the man. Yes. And he elevates anything that he's in. I, I think so. Even if it's a, a low-budget horror movie like this one. He kind of has that Sam Jackson effect. Like, he's been in some terrible films, but he always brings... Well, I think he's a better actor than Sam Jackson, but I mean, I always oh, like to watch... bold him. words. Well, they're, they're kind of the same, you know, they're not, I don't know, they kind of bring the same kind of guy to each performance, but it's always a good performance. So, yeah. Well, I do want to talk about the movie a little bit more and, and kind of get into it. But Kelly, there's something we do every time we have somebody on the show. Every episode, we have a game that we play called The Classic Five. I can't remember if we were doing it when we had you on the show last. I feel but like we did because I feel like I remember most of your guests just going, oh, man, I'm just going to every everything's going to go out of my head and I'm not going to have anything. <laughs> so I think I remember that experience. So it's a card game that we play. The cards each have a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. They're all about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. It's just basically a conversation starter. There's not really points or score or anything. So like I said, no wrong answers. You ready to play? I am. Let's go. All right. Card number one right off the top of the deck. Kelly, what character from a classic monster movie would you like to have a drink or a meal with? Ooh, honestly, I've got to say the uh, Invisible Man. <laughs> he was a psycho and I totally love him. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or, or yeah, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, he's a little, it'd be fun just to listen to him rant. Yeah, maybe earlier, like before he goes full on, you know. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm a big Invisible Man fan. I feel like those films don't get enough attention. No, people don't uh, talk about them as much. And um, it's one of my, my oldest child's favorite old films. And we watch it about once a year. Oh, nice. All right, card number two. Who's your favorite actor to play the Phantom of the Opera? Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Lon Chaney. But honestly, I have only seen like two Phantoms. So, okay. But I just can't imagine like Gerard Butler was any good. But maybe, I don't know, maybe someone's angry listening to me say that. <laughs> but, but yeah, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney was um, excellent. Old school. He's the man. Yeah. He, he kind of well, what, what about you, Derek? How many Phantoms have you seen? Uh, I've seen quite a few, up to and including, well, the one you just referenced with Gerard Butler. I've seen the one with Robert Englund. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I've right. seen the Universal Color version, uh, the Lon Chaney version. So I've seen quite a few uh, versions and iterations of that. Antonio Banderas, wasn't he one of the, wasn't he a phantom once? Was he? Uh, I've seen him singing it. <laughs> so. Well, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I would probably go old school as well, though. It's Lon Chaney, the original, <laughs> the man, the master. Yeah. You know, he just is so good. And I think that's the most recent one I've seen. I, so. Well, you know, I'm I'm 42. And so um, Phantom was huge when I was in high school, uh, Same the, here. the musical. And I do not care for the music. And so and the story is pretty cool. It's just one of those things that because the musical was so massive or the I don't know if it's considered an opera, but. I just kind of didn't get into Phantom too much. You know, I was kind of the same way. I, I was that cocky little kid that Phantom of the Opera is a horror story. How dare they make it a love musical? You know, I was like that. So, yeah, I was. <laughs> it is a horror story. I don't find it very romantic at all. Exactly. Now, I have since seen the musical on stage and I did see the film uh, theatrically, actually, with my wife. And, you know, I mean, I, I get it and I get where the love story can be interjected. But for me, Lon Chaney is you know, the man he's he's gonna be the one although i really do like hammer films version as well and yeah. I mean, it's just an iconic story you can yeah. do so much with it's funny you mentioned gerard butler because in a recording that i just did with somebody else he did phantom of the opera a few years before that he was dracula right now i was really hopeful that that meant we had a, a dashing leading man who was charismatic and all the women loved him and he'd continue to do these iconic horror figures yeah. now, he, he didn't but it would have been great i didn't seem as dracula either and i find myself wondering if he's able to mask his a scottish accent or not he's a handsome guy he's been in some cool films but i don't think of him as and incredibly, I hope I hope he doesn't listen to your podcast. I'd hate to be on Gerard Butler. He's so cute, but uh, I don't think of him <laughs> as like a super. I don't know. So uh, I didn't see him as Dracula, but maybe I should try that out. I haven't watched that movie uh, in years, so I, I I don't remember an accent or not. Right. Yeah. And anyway, um, this game is really a conversation starter, and this is exactly what happened. Let's get back to it. Card number three. What classic monster movie would you like to see as an animated remake? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Honestly, I would I would say Dracula. I'm a Ooh. big freakish fan of the book, and yeah. I'll watch any Dracula project, and I think that animation could serve that story pretty pretty well. That could be a lot of fun. I'm sure he's been in some stuff, Scooby-Doo, sure. but yeah, um, I'm not the most animated 
uh, I don't watch a lot of animated films. I'm just a huge, uh, huge Dracula person. So right on. Uh, you, you were talking about the book. I just started reading a book called Powers of Darkness, The Lost Version of Dracula. Are you familiar with no. that? In 1900, the book Dracula was translated into Icelandic, uh, in Iceland, and they changed the story. Mm. And in Powers of Darkness, they retranslated it back to English, and it's fascinating. It's the same story that we know, but there's like four new characters and extended sequences here and other things are dropped there. In the introduction, it's implied that Van Helsing was based on a real person, that he was a real guy. Uh, wow. It's, it's really, really interesting that they, that they did it this way. And there's questions as to whether or not Bram Stoker actually knew about it. Uh, the introduction is signed by BS and they're like, well, is that really Bram Stoker? Like or did BS. they say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yes, fascinating book came out a few years ago. Highly recommend it. Cool. I actually wrote that down. I might have to check that one out. Right on. All right. Card number four. Who's your favorite giant monster? King Kong or Godzilla? Oh, Godzilla. A thousand percent. Yeah. No hesitation. Yeah. I've never connected with King Kong. I'm um, enjoying the concept. I think we're going to get some more King Kong coming up. Skull Island here. We just had that. That was fun. But mm -hmm. I'm a big Godzilla fan. Do you have a favorite Godzilla film? The first one's my favorite. And I will tell you, so uh, I avoid trailers at all costs when possible. And I just sat through uh, Shazam, which I enjoyed. And they had a Godzilla trailer and I literally stuck my fingers in my ears and closed my eyes because <laughs> I and it's going to be really hard to not see images from the upcoming film. But that's my plan anyway. So, yeah, um, but the original is great. I didn't mind the 2014 that we just had. Uh, so that's kind of why I'm looking forward to the one in I think it's May that it's coming out. I think so. Yeah. And I'm. Also looking forward to that. He's got Charles Dance in it, which who also oh. played the Phantom, actually, oh, uh, at one him. point. Yeah, he uh, Charles Dance played the Phantom of the Opera in a TV movie version of the musical, but it was completely different music because they couldn't get the rights oh, wow. to <laughs> what was done on stage. Um, but yeah, it's got Charles Dance in it, and then the little girl who played Eleven, uh, yes. Billy Bobby Brown, right. is that it? She's probably yeah. not a little girl anymore, but yes. Well, yeah. that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know uh, a couple of the actors in it. I was listening to Monster Kid Radio, and you started to describe a Rodan moment. And yeah. in the trailer, and I again, I went la 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 and stuck my fingers like, oh like, no, no, it's okay, I didn't hear anything, but um, yeah, it looks <laughs> it looks great, and I mean, you know, I have two teen boys, and so I know people don't like remakes and re you know redos, but for me, it, it, and having children, it's pretty cool uh, because we we watch a newer film and talk about you know the first film and and go back and watch that, and that's just been really an awesome part of parenting, frankly. <laughs> right on. Well, that's a parenting win, though, it sounds yeah. like. That's awesome. Yeah, when it comes to remakes, I I've tried over the years to choke back the automatic gag reflex that I have to, oh, remake, ah, no, it's terrible, terrible. <laughs> but with things like Godzilla or some of these other characters and all that, really, I, I don't know if it's really a bad thing that they are getting reintroduced in new films. Well, it doesn't you know, bother because, me because we always have the original. Right. But that said, like, you're going to laugh, but I haven't been able to watch the Point Break remake because I love the, <laughs> I love the original so much. And I'm like, there's just no way I'm going to like it. There's, I love the original so much, but I will watch it someday. I just know that I won't probably won't like it. So I don't mind remakes at all. I, I feel like if you love the original, you're probably not a remake's probably not going to do it for you. And that's just part of it. But, um, I, I yeah. find it fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, I could go off on this yes, whole tangent. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to dial it back in and ask you your final question. Kelly, what's your favorite classic 3D movie? Um, classic 3D movie. I'm drawing a blank. I feel like a lot of 3D movies aren't super classic. I Well, take classic out of it then. Do you have a favorite uh, monster or horror 3D film? <sighs> well, no, but I will say I just watched, I can't think of one. I did just watch Jaws 3D and it did, it did suck as much as I remember from being, <laughs> I'll give you an anti-answer, <laughs> but uh, no, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen a lot of older 3D films. I've seen a few newer ones and that's about it. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything. One terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it. Then, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, two continued the legend and spread the fear. Next summer, Nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure. And for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Well, Jaws 3D was the first Jaws I saw. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw it in the theater as part of a kind of sort of double feature with the James Bond movie Octopussy. Oh, well, at least you got something good out of the deal. That, that was... Uh, Quite, quite the movie going experience. Okay, well, you know what? Let's let's pick another card then. Oh, no. uh, let's see. No, it's okay. <laughs> this is this is fun. This is fun. We'll pick another card. Uh, okay, how about this? What's your favorite Bela Lugosi role? Oh, I loved the Black Cat so yes. much, like so much. So I'm gonna go with that. So good. Yes, it so is so good. <laughs> And I, I want to say, like, real quick before we move on, have you seen the Colonel March mysteries with Boris Karloff? It's been on my list for years, uh, but I have not yet. Because no. I was listening to your podcast and you did the whole Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And I honestly feel like the Colonel March, like, tipped me into Karloff just because he plays this fussy, sweet, old, one-eyed colonel solving the most lightweight mysteries you can imagine and i just i don't know why but i've loved that show so i just want to give a shout out it's definitely not a monster show it's a parlor mystery that is about the most quaint parlor mystery i've ever seen but it's great it's got karloff it in does. It. so it, you know you mentioned the big three you know the big saints the patron saints of monster kid radio karloff lugosi agar doesn't matter they always have a home here on mkr <laughs> yeah doesn't matter rightfully so i mean not not saying i'm going to cover like she wore a yellow ribbon because john agar was in it but still <laughs> i'm just saying you know yes well well this is not a monster karloff and i guess maybe that's why i was so pleased because i think i'd only seen him as as a creep uh mm. so it was pretty cool to run across those I'll have to check him out and track him down. I, I know uh, his daughter was a fan of him, mm. and uh, Sarah did mention them to me more than once when I met her several years ago. So one of these days, I'll check him out and track him down. It was a BBC series, wasn't it? I don't know. I mean, I know or, it's British, yeah. but um, no, it's on Amazon Prime. And uh, Oh, is I it? Was, okay, that was my next question. Yeah, I so. just kind of stumbled across it. And like I said, I mean, these are really simple little mysteries. There's nothing. There's, it, it's not a, at any kind of level, uh, intellectual level, but it, it's just a sweet little show. And he's just very sweet in it. And there's lots of tweed and you know how I feel about tweed. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> right on. Well, I'll have to check that out. That was the classic five and a half, I guess. Yeah. Classic six, maybe. All right. So... <laughs> 
Uh, and like I said, no wrong answers, but I'm still going to tell you. You won. Oh, good. You win. All right. And your prize is that you get to be on Monster Kid Radio this week. Oh, sweet. Do you dare to spend a night of terror in the Wax Museum? You can't tell the living from the dead. Are they flesh and blood, or are they wax? Are they alive, or are they dead? Jack the Ripper, Ivan the Terrible, Attila the Hun, Lizzie Borden, Lucretia Borgia, Bluebeard, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, terror in the Wax Museum. Now, when you brought this movie to my attention when you mentioned it, was this something that you had seen before that, that no. you have a lot of experience with? I, um, you know, I'm down here in my studio uh, sewing. I'm a tailor. And I put on I put on a lot of lightweight old movies that I've already seen. And um, I can't remember which one I was watching, but it got it ended and Amazon Prime suggested this one. And I was looking at the cast and I saw John Carradine and Ray Milland. And I thought, oh, well, Derek's going to know this one. And I think that's right the moment I texted you. I hadn't even, I don't even know if I'd seen it when I texted you. Mm, okay. But um, it's it's so weird because I feel like people don't talk about it and it wasn't rated very well, but it's such a cool little film. It's really neat. It feels a little out of its time. Yes, it does. It, does, it has a lot of uh, classic what we consider classic horror movie tropes, but it, it's in the 70s. It came out in 73. I don't like a lot of 70s horror. It's kind of everything's low lit and brown and dark and bleak. And this film feels yeah. like a throwback to the 60s, like mid 60s. It definitely does. Even the people that cast are classic horror or monster movie actors. A lot of familiar faces, not just Ray Milan, but you got the Bride of Frankenstein in here. Yes. You got Elsa Lanchester. I mean, that's gold right there. And she's great. Yes. I don't, I feel like she did not uh, do a lot of genre work, uh, which is too bad. Uh, I think she was fantastic in this. And obviously Bride, she did an episode of Night Gallery that I really like. But yeah, she's just fantastic in it. She's probably the biggest genre person in here because of her work in Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, which is so funny because she had quite a career. She did a lot of a lot of work and she's sort of known um, in the circles we hang out for this 10 minutes in a Bride of Frankenstein that she was <laughs> less kind of, than yeah, 10 probably. In it. She's got an amazing career and was an amazing personality and she also has a few albums out there of body uh, parlor room songs. Like, I, Really? Yes, I definitely, I'll send you a Spotify link and her husband, you know, Charles Lawton, um, introduces some of the songs on the album. I mean, they're exactly the kind of songs that we were hearing in the film, which is so goofy because she wasn't the character that sang those songs. No, she's got quite an amazing. And I don't know if this is the only film besides this one that she and Ray Milland were in, but I did see her with Ray Milland in The Big Clock. Did you ever watch that film? No, I didn't. It's um, it's like a thriller mystery, and she plays an artist in it, like this goofy artist, and she is so great in it. And he's the lead. He's the hero. And it would be called a thriller today, but it's an old black and white film called The Big Clock. And okay. it's kind of cool because that was like 30 years before this film that we're talking about today. I need to know more about her and explore her work a little bit more. Uh, just I feel like I know a bunch about Karloff and Lugosi and all them, but I mean, she's part of that iconic era yes. of Universal Monsters. Yeah. I have to know more about her and, and give her more respect by watching some of these other things. Uh, I'm looking at her credit list, and I guess as a kid, I was exposed to her because she was in a couple of Disney productions. Right. And I watched you know, like Blackbeard's Ghosts and things like that. I watched as a kid, and she's in that. Right. 
But yeah, huh. And then Willard, which I've stayed away from well. all of those films, but I think she got some props for her role in that too. So I think okay. that was one of her last films. But And it's interesting that she's in this movie considering that the makeup that was designed for the Kharkov character, they used the Charles Lawton hunchback makeup as inspiration. Okay. And Charles Lawton being her husband, I thought that was kind of yeah. interesting to, to, to learn. When I just learned that, I thought that was, that's kind of cool. Uh, but I don't want to get away from the other horror legends in this. I mean, you've got John Carradine. Yes. And what has that man not done? I know. I think he's definitely one of the most prolific character actors in Hollywood. I remember the first time I saw him in a movie, which is kind of rare to like remember the first time. And that would be The Unearthly. Oh, okay. He's usually playing... Uh, creepy henchman or, or he's often playing a creepy henchman and this movie he plays kind of a harmless old coot uh which i i i, I like the coot i like the old coot so like <laughs> and he's got a beard a kind of gross beard so yeah john carradine did it all man he's mad scientist yes. he was Creepy old men, goofy old men, vampires. Uh, he did it all. He was and the great owl in The Secret of Nam. That probably was the first thing I... Oh, there you go. Did, there you go. Did he ever, ever play a romantic lead? I'm sure when he was younger, he did. Um, I mean, he was a Carradine, right? Uh, okay. I would think. This is somebody that I know his genre stuff. Yes. Because he did so much of right. it. And he never turned it down. I never got the impression that he looked down on horror or genre work. In fact, towards the end of his career, a lot of it was just people yeah. casting him because they liked him in the horror movies. So I, I appreciate a working actor, you know, just mm -hmm. taking the roles. I, I don't look down on that at all. I'm um, we've all, we've all worked fast food or worked something that was a paycheck and my don't see any shame in that. <laughs> Having some flashbacks here uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to your jobs or to Carradine films because uh, both. <laughs> the Carradine films are good flashbacks. The, the fast food job that I used, that was my first job. And I worked at Arby's, and it was Ooh. brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the other name that I want to mention is Patrick Knowles, who also did some genre work as well. He did more non-genre stuff, but of course, I know him from The Wolfman uh -huh. or Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, things like that. And I know him from Adventures of Robin Hood. I think he was Will Scarlet in that one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I could see a that. dashing young man. So, Yeah. He uh, had a big career, too. Mm -hmm. This was one of the last movies he did. Mm -hmm. the, the only other movie that he did around the same time was a movie called Arnold, which was by the same filmmakers, came out around the same time, shot around the same right. time. It just so, two for one. Yeah, much. and he, Patrick Knowles is kind of barely in the film. He, isn't, he doesn't have a huge part, but this, this had a large cast, too. A large cast of people with names and speaking parts and all of that. So they, there were a couple people that weren't in it all that much. Yeah. Uh, some of the other cast members, anybody stand out to you that you want to talk about? Oh, well, Broderick Crawford, who plays the sort of the ugly American character, uh, he had <laughs> quite a career and I'm watching the film and I'm like, where do I, where am I remembering him from? And he was in Born Yesterday, the one with Julie Holiday. Did you ever watch that? Oh, okay. He was great in that. That's actually a great film. He was excellent. And he was also in Bo Jess. Um, so he's, mm -hmm. he's been in some pretty cool stuff and he, you know, he played his role in this pretty well. I liked him a lot. You know, like you said, he's the ugly American. He's the man who's throwing all the money right. around, wants to buy the wax figures from Carradine. And he's Dupree. an old lecherous drunk. So I'm not naming names, but I've got some of those older guys in my family. Yeah. But, um, well, apparently he liked to drink in real life, you know? 
Yeah, that they were concerned that he wasn't going to stay on the wagon oh. while producing the film. And at one point, he did assure everybody that, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll stay saber. Or, <laughs> I'll, stay, I'll stay sober until I'm drunk. And then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the word was he acted better when he was drunk than he was sober. When he was yeah, sober, so, he had a cool you know. little part. Um, he and he and uh, Elsa were kind of the candlestick set because, you know, they were. Yes. Yeah. So they were great together and in opposition to one another. There's a couple other actors. Uh, Lisa Liu, uh, she's only in it for a minute playing, I think, Madam Yang. But she has quite a career and she was she's like in her early 90s and she was just in crazy rich asians which yeah, is a, she's still working yes, that's, yeah that's fantastic yeah so she i mean she had a tiny part but i expected her to be in the movie more because at the beginning of the film we have a a, a list uh, they show who it is yeah. and they tell us who it is it's not just a bunch of names it's this is the person you're seeing and they introduce yes uh, and i assumed she was going to be a bigger part of the film i did too really but it was just this one little alibi scene but um, yep. and then there's shaney wallace who okay so I, did you ever watch oliver yes well i have yeah. not but she apparently was well loved and that sort of catapulted her to some degree of fame and um, she kind of plays a, you know, she plays the tart with a heart, right? <laughs> in, in <laughs> Oliver and in this film as well. She's still kicking and going around to conventions and stuff. And um, I didn't see Oliver. Uh, I do like the actual book. Um, I'm a Dickens fan, but I don't watch a lot of musicals. So, um, okay. but that's also got your your buddy Oliver Reed in it too, doesn't? It? Yeah. yeah. See, that's and that's why I've seen it. Yes, because he's a <laughs> Surprise, he's a thug. <laughs> yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> um, we were talking about some of the genre connections here. I- I'd be remiss if I didn't say something about Maurice Evans. Dr. Zayas, isn't that? He's got some Dr. Zayas action here, which is great. Uh, so we get a little bit of my Planet of the Apes mojo going, which I love. He doesn't have a huge part. I mean, he's there, but he's not super involved with the story. So it's kind of cool to see him. You know, this film like had a lot of people in it and a few of the parts seemed a bit unnecessary. Like the film seemed preoccupied with giving us as many red herrings as possible. And so there were a couple parts and he plays the inspector, right? And then the younger fellow, uh, Mm -hmm. don't remember that actor's name. Uh, Mark Edwards. Mark Edwards. And so we've got two cops who are both pretty bad at their jobs. I felt like the younger cop was just there to be a romantic foil for Meg, the niece, the heiress, the wax museum heiress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. Yeah, I could see that too. He he doesn't seem to be a very effective detective. Nope. I mean, he says he is at one point even, but he's really not. uh, He's obsessed with uh, with Jack the Ripper. Yeah. But, but you know there's that? a clue there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never caught him. Yeah. I've seen him in other things. You okay. Know, he did Blood from the Mummy's Tomb over at Hammer. Oh. Uh, so he was in that. Uh, I keep meaning to track down uh, a movie called Horror of Snape Island. It's also known as Tower of Evil. It came out in 72. Something that I've been wanting to watch. I know he was in that. But he doesn't have like a very long career previous. He looks like a 70s this. TV actor to me. Like he has. Yes. Work. Yes. He's got yeah, a great coat in this film. I'm always noticing the clothes. I like his coat. As long as I've been doing this show and I start watching these movies with a more critical eye, uh, when I interact with people like you or Dominique Lamsey's, I can't help but think about the clothing, the tailoring, the gowns, all this stuff, because you guys are both into the costuming side of things and the clothing side of things. And the, you're, Like you said, you're a tailor. And it does make me enjoy these movies on a different level. 
I think the costumes of this were fun. They were, although Karkov's outfit is abysmal. I mean, he's wearing a stripy sort of pre-Freddy Krueger sweater that is made of a fabric that would not have existed um, at that time. But yeah, no, the costumes. I thought the sets were pretty cute, actually. They were small, but Mm -hmm. kind of well-crafted. My husband watched it with me last night. He's like, oh, it's like a play. I was like, yeah, it's kind of got that parochial look to it. I could see this one being adapted as a play. I mean, more so than the other two big Wax Museum movies. I could see this one being turned into a play for sure. Yeah, it could definitely function well. Well, you mentioned Karkov, so I want want to talk about him real quick. He's our hunchbacked assistant, basically. He's our Charles Bronson as Igor in the House of Wax film. He's kind of the helper. He can't really speak. He can't really see. He can't really hear. But Dupree, played by Carradine, took pity upon him and brought him into the House of Wax or the Museum of Wax to do, well, whatever. To live in the cellar (laughs) sleeping on a pile of rags. He's a very kind uh, beneficiary there. (laughs) He lives like (laughs) under a grate and like sticks his hand out. um, And can look up girl skirts, you know, which was the first thing I thought. is like, this is not charming. This is creepy. Yeah, I just, the Karkov part is portrayed with total insensitivity to the human being that he is. Mm -hmm. But uh, he lives in the cellar. I mean, the two museum owners, you know, Ray Meland and uh, and, uh, John Carradine, take care of him. Um, Lori, the music hall gal, she's very sweet to him. Yeah, he can't see, he can't hear, he can't speak, and he's got a totally disfigured comically disfigured face it's a little over the top it is a little. Uh, the, <laughs> little, the, the actor's name is stephen marlowe um did a lot of television yeah, work and that sort of thing the makeup was done by uh somebody whose name i don't think i really come across before mm. jack h young oh, okay i don't know <laughs> the name uh or anything that he's done i probably could do some digging and find something that i've watched that he was involved with but this wasn't the best. No, and it's kind of funny because there's not a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of makeup required in this film. And they also have, gosh, this, there's a lot to talk about in this film. There's a troupe they hired to play the wax dummies. Mm-hmm. And I get the impression that was more of a budget thing because it's easier to hire a troupe of living statues than to build a bunch of wax <laughs> dummies. I'm Quite sure. I was reading an interview with the producer, and uh, that, that's exactly right. He didn't know how they were going to pull it off with the budget they had. And then one night he realized, oh, wait a minute. My wife and I just saw this thing with a bunch of actors pretending to be characters in a painting, and they stood still for so long that you kind of thought they were statues. I'll hire that group. Right. And it's not the first time I've seen that done. In Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there's a wax museum sequence, and some of the characters in there are supposedly made of wax, but they're really just... Right actor standing still much more effective in this film than in that one only saw jack the ripper move maybe once i don't know man the genghis khan dude <laughs> oh maybe that's the guy excuse me that's the guy uh, yeah i guess it that's was a laguna beach um a southern california troop that that they found mm-hmm. which i thought was totally cute because i'm i grew up in huntington beach so i was about eight but um the thing is though even as good as they are at standing still and they are your eye can tell that that's a person and it it really does take you out of the film. They they tried because they did try to make up their faces to hide. Yeah, that was interesting. I think that's where I was going with that. They had Karkov's makeup, but then the makeup on Jack the Ripper was like 
he had a he had long false eyelashes and eyeliner. I mean, I mm-hmm. I don't think I wore that much makeup on my wedding. Like he was really really made up, big old sideburns. <laughs> but yeah, the the amount of makeup on the wax figures was a little odd. Yeah, uh, this was actually uh, of the three wax museum movies. Uh, this one didn't have any wax figures at all. Right, House of Wax and uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum. They had some actual wax figures, but this one nothing. It's all people, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, like just tiny, tiny little tangent, they need to make more horror movies and wax museums because there have been a handful, you know, tourist trap. And I personally love wax work um, from the 80s. The two wax works movies are actually a lot of fun. They are super fun. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the House of Wax remake. But um, I wasn't going to mention yeah, that. Speaking yeah, of remakes. Right? Yeah. But, um, you know, there still needs to be like <laughs> a chill 20 more wax because wax dummies are freaky. <laughs> like they are just oh, yeah. freaky. There's just, there's an uncanny valley effect. It's just really weird. Right. It's like mannequin. Why do we have so many horror movies that have, that take place with a mannequin shop? And yet I don't get enough of my wax dummies. You know what I'm saying? It's not fair. We need more wax, wax museum films for sure. And we are long overdue because Mystery of the Wax Museum was 33. 20 years later, House of Wax, 53. And then this one, 20 years after that, 73. We are long overdue. We are. It's time. Someone Filmmakers. out there. Yeah. or chris mim or josh kennedy somebody make me a wax museum movie yes yes christopher (laughs) mim he can do it (laughs) no i'm sure he could (laughs) (laughs) and he will (laughs) (laughs) get that kickstarter now and then uh yeah but there is something real creepy and kind of unnerving and and i think part of it's the uncanny valley effect yeah a little bit but yeah there just needs to be more of it and the way this set is put together Unlike House of Wax, I keep making comparisons to House of Wax because I think that's probably the most prominent of those three. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike House of Wax, this one starts with the figures being killers. Yeah. We don't start with, oh, here's my Marie Antoinette or anything like that. Nope, we go straight to Genghis Khan, Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, you know, all, all the big ones. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but that's what sells. That's what brought people in. The very first scene, Carradine. Uh, strips a woman nude and slides her into the vat. And the film has these clever moments where uh, it misdirects you a tiny bit because that first scene, you think that that's, he is a murderer and that's a woman. And I think it was a, obviously a real actress. And then it's revealed that she's a dummy and she wasn't. And he even says things like, oh, she wasn't perfect. So, you know, she, I've got to throw her in the vat. Um, it's revealed that he's just a kindly, albeit creepy, a kindly old man who makes wax dummies. And that was just a wax dummy. But that first scene had that creep effect. And um, there were a lot of little bits of misdirection in this film. Like the very end scene has some misdirection that I thought was pretty sure. fun. So Sure. And he's hanging out with Kharkov and they're having a little chit chat. And then pretty soon John Carradine gets murdered, right? The Dupree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is after he's had a vision of all the figures coming to life uh, and that sort of thing. And he, again, it's a holdover from House of Wax where he views these figures, these creations as his children uh, and that sort of thing. So when they turn on him, he's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to sell. No, I didn't mean it, which I thought was. I I felt bad for the guy. It's like, you know, he's he's going to die. Yeah. Yeah, one way or another, right? And, and it's going to suck for him, and it's it's going to be at the hands of one of his wax figures of some, somehow. Right. But yeah, the, he does get murdered inside the wax museum. There's nobody else seen coming in or going out. The doors are locked. It's, it's a mystery. Right. And then I want to say about 20 minutes into the film, we have all of our characters assembled, which are the two police officers, mm-hmm. the lawyer, 
uh, Patrick Knowles. You've got Julia played by Lanchester. She's the she's the old bitty uh, guardian of Meg. <laughs> Meg had the worst part. Meg was not given much to work with here. She's just a sweet um, young woman who is supposedly inheriting a wax museum. And then you've got Flexner. So that's Ray Meland. He's pissed because uh, he wants to inherit the wax museum because he feels passionately about the museum and he's one of the chief architects, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got the guardian who wants them all to take off so that she can make money hand over fist, right? That's kind of the premise. Yeah, Julia, Elsa Lanchester's Julia, is very, uh, doesn't really spend a lot of time mourning the death of... No. Dupree. It's like, well, you know, he got killed. The body's not even in the ground yet. Yes, yes, but business, exactly. business. I'm going to make some money. Business will be good. Yep. And she's like, put Karkoff in an institution, you know. And then yeah, they, lock they, him up. They tell her, well, he works for real cheap. Uh, she's like, oh, oh he can stay. <laughs> so, she's a jerk, right? <laughs> and then we've got the American, that's um, Crawford. And he's, for some reason, is fixated on purchasing all of these figures and taking them to America. And he and Flexner have a falling out because he says, well, you can come with me if you want. And Flexner's like, no, like, I, I don't want to have to leave. This is my life's work. And so mm -hmm. we've instantly got a bunch of uh, suspects and a bunch of grudges, right? Oh, and Lori, the music hall woman next door who Crawford's kind of got a crush on. But also she's there's several scenes of her strolling, <laughs> strolling down the foggy Victorian streets. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So you're just uh, I, I really hope they wouldn't do the incredibly cliched murder the streetwalker. Uh, but of course, they did eventually get to that. But she's kind of a sweet character. I liked her. She's got I mean, she's built on a stereotype, right? The, the streetwalker, the prostitute with the heart of gold, you know, that sort of thing. But she's so fun to watch. She so, is. <laughs> you know, she's, she, she's performed to the hill. It was great. She uh, stands up to Crawford a few times in a way that I, I thought was pretty cool. It was well written. Mm -hmm. And she's, oh, we've got, there's so many people in this film because she, there's the landlord too. Sure. Um, that uh, the sweet old landlord is played by Lewis Hayward. I don't think we talked about him, but he had quite a career as well in the, you know, forties and he and Lori worked together. God, there's a lot of there are a lot of people in this movie. <laughs> you know, the movie's kind of structured like your typical murder mystery where you've got a whole bunch of people, somebody gets killed, who did it? Well, people start falling, you know, dropping like flies mm -hmm. as the story continues as we narrow down the the cast and suspect list. And I did appreciate that with the story structure and the way it's all kind of put together. I feel like every character was fairly well defined. Yeah. And you kind of knew who they all were. Um I, I did struggle a little bit with I think Patrick Knowles' character, I felt, could have used a little bit more. Yeah, he just kind of shows up a couple times. Yeah. He kind of is inserted into the scenes. But but I feel like at the end of the film, there are three main suspects, and he's one of them. So he was put in there to be one of the final suspects, is, is kind of how I took it. Exactly. So the first person to die after uh, Carradine's body is the American, right? Uh, Broderick, mm -hmm. Broderick Crawford, right? Right. Yeah. So they, they off him. And, and again, he's found in the museum. And that, oh, right. that's yes. the thing here. They're all, all the bodies are found in the museum mm -hmm. where there are no other doors. It's all locked up at night. In fact, there's even a scene where they specifically show Flexner giving Julia his key to the museum. Right. So, you know, that that's a thing that's mentioned and set up 
before the murders start happening. It gets kind of scary and creepy because how are these bodies turning up in here right. unless it's somebody who's in the building? But if it's already locked up and Ray doesn't have a key anymore, what, you know. Right. Meg has a dream where she's being chased by the wax figures and she wakes up, stands up, she's all rattled and boom, there's her uncle like standing there in the flesh and she screams again and Elsa comes running. And so, yeah, there's a, there's some either. And at this stage, it's like, is it a supernatural thing that's happening or is it a plot? Right. And I was wondering if they were going to go supernatural with it because we have seen the wax figures move a few times. Mm-hmm. And was it a dream right. or not? Uh, is it going to be some weird, there are automatons that were created by Dupree at some point, you know, a la Dr. Fives's, you know, right. hangout. I didn't know if they were going to go that route with it. I I was hooked. I was watching it right. and, and I couldn't figure it out. And I appreciated that a lot. And I want to say like the beginning credits were so weird because it almost looked like a TV movie. Yes. And that kind of, I think that was a little bit unfortunate. I don't know. There's a way that they... To me, they set it up that it wasn't a supernatural. It was some kind of plot, right? Somebody has a secret key. Somebody has a secret entrance. That's kind of what I was thinking. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't too scared, I guess, of the wax figures. But yeah, and I think the next person, oh, is it Lori who gets killed? She's walking down the street. She's stalked. She turns around and, oh, it's just a policeman. It's just a Bobby. She relaxes. Then she goes, oh, why are you wearing that outfit? And then it cuts away. The the film has almost no gore. There's a little blood, but they don't show any murders. They only show a body that's been stabbed or, in Lori's case, her head's cut off. This is part of the reason why it feels more like a, a 60s yeah. kind of horror film. Right. Because it does not You're have right. a lot of that, the way it's paced as well. Uh, even with the very beginning when we see Carradine dump the the wax body or the wax figure into the boiling wax. We even cut away. Yeah. There's this weird jump cut. Yes. I don't know if you caught that or not. There's this weird jump cut. You don't actually see the body go into the wax. <laughs> and I think that was because of the nudity, because then you would have seen a naked female form. Um, I think or, that's why. Or they didn't want to, but they didn't pop for a wax figure. <laughs> yeah, either, yeah, so, true. you know, it's like, by the gonna... way, that wax looked delicious. <laughs> Like, what was it? Was it really? It was good and creamy, right? (laughs) It looked good. It looked like a delicious soup. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I bet it was like only about six inches deep. It had a false bottom, whatever was in there. Because that was a big old hot tub full of wax. Yeah. So Lori, they find her headless at the Mary Antoinette exhibit, correct? They find her. Correct. Mm -hmm. Meg is so funny because Meg has discovered two bodies at this point, but she has no ability. She has no peripheral vision. She has no, cause she walks down <laughs> a flight of stairs for like five minutes and then sees that Crawford's got a, a huge sword in his body. And the same right. with when she discovers, she's like, Oh, the guillotine fell. I'm like, I really feel like I would have looked <laughs> right at the bottom of that thing. and seen. It. Yeah. You notice the guillotine had fallen, but you didn't see right. the head. <laughs> yeah, She kept walking her, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Is yeah, this the point? Oh, you watched the film today, I think. But I, mm-hmm. at some point, the young policeman who has the crush on Meg, and he does that thing where he's, he physically leads her everywhere that men are always doing to women in films. Which oh, is yes. But um, he tells her there's been at least two murders, and he's like, you shouldn't leave. Someone's just trying to scare you. <laughs> I'm like, this is a terrible policeman. 
<laughs> just give me 24 hours. Just yeah. just do 24 hours more. And I'll park across the street. And we know that someone's in the house. Someone's able to find their secret way into the place. But he's like, you'll be safe because I will park across the street. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Good job. (laughs) The Scotland Yard in so many of these movies, just not very effective or efficient. And also we've got Flexner, the scene at the Chinese restaurant. The cop has uh, the dragon lady, quote unquote, come out and read the fortune of Meg and um, also determine that Flexner probably had an alibi. That was mostly what that scene was about. That was a big concern is how... You know, what happened with Flexner? Right. Did he didn't show up to work on time? He was drunk. He doesn't remember a lot of the evening before. But maybe his alibi does check out. And and at that point, the cop says to Flexner, "That Jack the Ripper figure looks a lot like you." And and we're all watching, going, "No, no. not not really. Not <laughs> like in no way." Right. But that was, you know, again, it was a red herring, right? It's like, oh, maybe there are so many red herrings. Yes. I mean, they, this movie is thick with. Well, they never did catch Jack the Ripper. Maybe he's back and he doesn't like how he's being portrayed in the wax museum. I don't think that's what motivated Jack. Right. right. But, you know, and Brenda behind me is now giggling. They're like Kharkov, who might have been Dupree's son. There's so many of those like, oh, it might be. Weird little moments. Yeah. Which is, I thought it was cute, you know. Um. (laughs) I love every time uh, the Sergeant Hawks, the the younger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Every time he t- talks to Karkov, he says something. Karkov doesn't seem to understand. Then he gets down in his face and says it again real loud and real slow. Right. And then if Karkov nods, okay, that's fine. You can go. Now. Right. That's, that's it. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he mostly, the cop mostly just like has tea in the parlor with Meg because he's got a crush on Meg. It's like, yeah, are you going to investigate or are you just trying to horn out on this wax museum heiress? You know, so... <laughs> And so I think we're coming up on the finale here because, of course, you know, Meg stays and her and Julia now have a pistol and they hear a noise and they're creeping around and they find Karlov, Karlov, Karkov, sorry, Karkov incapacitated in the basement. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, Jack the Ripper jumps out. Meg either faints or no, Elsa faints. Yeah, Elsa faints. Drops the gun. And that was a cute comedic moment, right? Because she had taken the gun from Meg and said, this needs a steady hand. And then she's out. She passes out. (laughs) Jack the Ripper seems to be wanting to chuck Meg in that wax. That's his plan. And Karkov and Jack the Ripper have a little tussle. The film unceremoniously just murders Karkov, just like they did with Laurie, right? I was really surprised by that. That shocked me. I wasn't because I feel like they had so many cast members that they just picked off a few extras. And that's kind of why Lori, because Lori got killed for no reason too. And um, that's true. So they chucked Karkov in the wax, which I I was like, boo. And finally, uh, Hawks busts in. I don't know where he was before in the carriage. Yeah, She even goes outside to check the cab and he's not there. So right. is he the one exactly. killing everybody? Which, exactly. Really? So he and, and Jack the Ripper and Jack the Ripper's stunt double have quite a fight upstairs. And finally, Jack the Ripper gets impaled on a end of an axe. He's dead. And this was a cute little scene. Hawks reaches down, pulls the mask off Jack the Ripper. And they don't show you who's underneath. And then they move to the next morning and the two police officers who, in my opinion, have not earned the right to act like they solved the case, but they (laughs) they explain the case 
and they explain it in a way to where you think it's Flexner or um, the lawyer. That's kind of what I thought was cool about that scene because they say, oh, he wanted, he didn't want the museum sold. And that's mm -hmm. why he had to kill Dupre. And that's why he killed the American. And Laurie saw him. So that's why he killed Laurie. Right? Right. That's the implication. And Flexner was seen in the pub next door telling uh, the American very loudly, I'm going to stop you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's all leading towards it's Flexner, it's Flexner. And that he's not in the final scene is real telling. I think they're trying to make us think it's him. Right. Like I said, or the lawyer. I like the reveal at the end. Me too. Um, I did like the reveal at the end and the way they did it. Although it's really creepy that <laughs> yes. we're going to recreate the owners, the previous owners death scene yeah. for his very own wax museum. And I know earlier Flexner was like, well, he would have liked it. Yes. He liked this kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. A little, t a little tacky uh, for sure. But it's, it's going to sell tickets, so there's some real silly moments, like you said, that, that are just a little like, mm, that's a stretch. But there's also some very effective storytelling happening here, like the end scene with the final reveal. There are a couple of scene transitions that actually go from one scene to the next in the middle of a line of dialogue. But yes. The way they do it, somebody is calling ladies yes. and gentlemen, but they cut at the end and then they go to gentlemen, yes. Flexner doing a tour, a, a couple scene. of things like yeah. that. Uh, and I really like those transitions uh, a lot. And I think the performances are really good, really solid. It was cool to see Ray Milan, you know, in, I guess, kind of sort of a leading role. Uh, he might not be the number one or two character, but he's right up there. And I loved him. You know, he'd kind of turned the corner <laughs> by the time he was doing what well, he did. The third of the Poe series, right? Was it uh, mm -hmm. the one about premature burial? That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's the one he did. And by that time, he sort of turned into... Um, I mean, he did have some awesome uh, roles. I know he was in Love Story, and I um, we talked about Panic in the Year Zero, mm -hmm. which is if you haven't, if your listeners haven't watched that one, it's a family survivalist post-apocalyptic 1962 black and white film, and with Frankie Avalon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and um, he has the best uh, Ray Milland has the best corduroy coat of all time in that film. But um, moving moving back, it's a good movie, good drama. Very, it really is. Yeah. He doesn't understand why the storekeeper won't take his credit card at the end of the world. Right. But, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, and it's very, you know, it's very paternalistic and there's some really problematic stuff about women in the film. But it's a great there drama. Are. Um, I yes. would definitely watch it again. And, of course, then, you know, around the same time as The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, which is an excellent film. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but he he had definitely turned the corner. I mean, at one point earlier in his career, he was the highest paid um, actor at, at, through Paramount. Like he was massive. He was, yeah. he was the number one guy. And uh, I actually, like I said, I found a, a short interview with the producer and they were talking about him bringing Ray Milan to the set and showing him where his dressing room was going to be. And where they took him was where the old dressing rooms were on Paramount's lot back in the day where Ray was the number one guy. Uh, but those offices, excuse me, those rooms have been turned into offices over the years and that sort of thing. But the producer of the film made a point of getting the number one office that used to be the number one dressing room and having it converted by the set people and the production people to make it look like Ray's old dressing room, complete with pictures of his previous movies all over the place and that Aww. sort of thing. And he brought him in there. And I, I mean, that's, that's a lot of respect shown. And I think that's great. That's class. That's class, man. Yeah. And I mean, I know Ray Milan said later in his life that he had other friends who complained that they weren't getting the scripts and he said well you're 68 you're not 28 so he seems to have had a pragmatic outlook 
I mean, again, mm. I haven't read his autobiography. I look forward to checking that out. But, you know, that like I, like I said, I don't think there's any shame in just being in the films that you're offered. It's so funny. I, I have actually not seen The Thing with Two Heads. Hey, man, listen, they strapped me into this electric chair and this cat comes up to me and said, do you want to live? So you know what I told him. Seems all I have to do is volunteer for this medical experiment. So of course I jumped at it, you know, because I'm innocent. And all I need is a little time to prove it. So they took me to this doctor's house. And when I wake up on the table, attached to my body is a head of a white dude. And he's looking at me eyeball to eyeball. So I checked him out. And by looking at his face, I can tell here is a bigot. Man, this is one of the funniest pictures that you ever want to see. I mean, we go shopping, we chase chicks, we catch a few, we get chased by the fuzz. If you want to see one of the funniest pictures in the world, you got to see The Thing with Two Heads with Ray Milan and me, Rosie Greer. The Thing with Two Heads, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Dig it. This movie is post The Thing with Two Heads. Yeah. So, I mean, you think about, like you said, his career, he kind of turned turn the corner. I, I feel like, especially with men, it probably doesn't hold as much for women, unfortunately. But I feel like with men, once they get to a certain age, uh, the kids that they scared growing up are now the filmmakers and they want to put them in their own movies. Right. So some of these folks have a second career in the genre stuff again. I don't see that happen nearly as much with uh, a lot of the women performers in horror, which is unfortunate. And just women today in Hollywood are still, you know, underpaid. And But um, yeah, some of them, it's weird. Like, I feel like we have a lot of older actors today, men, who still are able to get these amazing roles or at least amazing paychecks for films. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they don't all go down this sort of I don't know, B-movie route. But uh, and these aren't really, I mean, he was in a lot of some sci-fi and horror, but obviously, you know, his best film, according to most people, and one that I, this is the film that got him on the map for me was The Lost Weekend uh, from 1945. Just yes. Yes. A, a peerless film about alcoholism, which is a subject very near dear to my heart. He was also in one of my favorite ghost story, uh, movies, The Uninvited. Uh, it was so cool. I got to show that one to my son. And, um, you know, that's a slow movie, right? And kids today get to see movies like Hereditary or whatever, you know, much, much more intense ghost films or supernatural films. But my son loved it. Beautiful film. If people, I think it was filmed in Cornwall. Or it was supposed to be in Cornwall. But um, yeah. Great it film. needs to be seen. Yes. It needs to be seen. Good. And Reap the Wild Wind, he was in that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to give a shout out to his, I think it was his directorial debut, A Man Alone, which is a Western that I think is a pretty sweet, uh, modest Western that's a little darker than a lot of Westerns from the era, but definitely great film. Well, and he had worked with, speaking of Westerns, he had worked with the filmmakers on this on a movie called Black Noon, hmm. which is supposed to be kind of a spooky Western too, which Ooh. I've never seen. But as soon as I read something about that, I was like, I, I have to see this. Yeah. I feel like I haven't seen as many uh, Weird West and um, Supernatural Westerns as I would like. Like, I haven't seen that many. And that it, there's such great concepts. And everyone that I've seen, I've loved. Except maybe Cowboys and Aliens. I, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that wasn't much. But yeah, well, you know. It had Daniel Craig in it. So. <laughs> yeah, you know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like, this film... Because there's kind of just a lot of things that happen. In it. There's so much happening in it. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And, 
you know, we do talk about spoilers on the show that, yes, there are going to be spoilers. So if you've made it this far and you haven't seen the movie, uh, I think there's still a lot to really hang on to and chew on here with this movie. It just looks cool. Yeah. You know, it's got a little bit of that 70s aesthetic, but it really is a throwback to more of the 60s. And, you know, being the film score guy, I got to say, I love the music uh, in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by George. And I don't know if it's Dunning or Dooning. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but he did Star Trek. You know, uh, he did so much. Uh, and the music in this is solid. You know, I think I just really like the look of these soundstage sets and the fog machine and these little I, I'm sure you've talked about City of the Dead slash Horror Hotel Oh, uh, yeah. But that's kind of like one of my favorite as far as that was, was that Amicus? I can't remember. Uh, not quite. It was the company that was going to become Next Amicus. Like, yeah. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Almost. But, I mean, it's the same people, but they hadn't come up. With, yeah. There's something just like thrilling about those kinds of sets for me. And this isn't on pier with that, but it still is a the really well crafted small sets. And I, I like the atmosphere quite a bit. That's part of why I feel like this could be turned into a play really easily. Yeah, it could. Yeah. You know, I don't know who's got the rights to this, but you're missing out if you haven't done it yet. The last thing, you know, the poster was not great. I wonder, like, sometimes a film with a, for me, if a film has a great poster, I'll watch it without knowing anything else. The poster, it said something like Kharkov is on his way and it deliberately spelled it K-A-R-K-O-F-F. So it was definitely trying to trick people into thinking that Karloff was in the film (laughs) because Karkov in the movie is spelled with a V, not two Fs. So I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. A little on the nose. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta get people in the theater somehow. That's right. (laughs) It it did seem odd. uh, And they do really imply that he's the one doing it. It's like, ah. I didn't, uh, out of everyone, I didn't suspect him once. I don't know. No, neither did I. He did not seem sinister at all. Absolutely not. Yeah. I had, uh, no, I don't think it was him at all. It could have been anyone else, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, overall, I really dug it. I watched it on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you have access to it. And I would highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. And I'm so glad that Kelly brought it into my life. Well, thanks, Derek. It was a fun little find. And especially if you're a fan of those actors, um, definitely. a, a Yeah. yeah. Oh, and there's a riff tracks of it, which I didn't even know. And uh, oh, is there? Yes. Okay. And so I look forward to checking that out. But yeah, it was a fun film. Definitely a mystery, not really a horror film. But uh, yeah. Well, let's not wait nearly as long as we did this time right. to have you back on the show at some point. Uh, I love chatting mo- monster movies with you, movies with you in general. When I bumped into you a couple months back here for yes. uh, was a House of Wax that we saw. Yes, no, no, no. That was, the, was it House of Wax. Yeah, it was House on Haunted Hill. Haunted, House on Haunted Hill, and um, yeah, in Portland, packed theater. I'm sure you've mentioned it on the podcast, but it was oh, so yeah. cool to meet you in person. You know, Derek and I only live about two and a half hours away from each other, but um, I always knew we'd run into each other down there at some point. But it was at some so point cool. it will happen. Yeah. That was a great night. That that was just so fun to see that film in a packed theater. I, I love that the takeaway was I got to meet Derek and not that I got to meet well, Victoria Price. I didn't really Price. meet that her. Big... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know you and um, it was it was great. I, I always appreciate when I meet someone online, when I see their face and hear their voice. Because if you've ever met someone without having uh, heard their voice and seen them, it can be really odd because you form a mental picture. So I was like, mm. there's Derek. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was a fun night for sure. (laughs) That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, And this has been a lot of fun. And if people want to 
keep up with whatever Kelly's doing that I'm sure is always going to be a lot of fun. B-Movie BFFs, is that the best way for people to find you? Yeah, Facebook's, I'm more active on Facebook. So B-Movie, I have a page, B-Movie BFFs on Facebook. And thank you so much for having me back on. Like your show is great. I've been catching up on a few recent episodes. You you have just, you've done done so much hard work and it's paying off. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Appreciate the kind words. And uh, yeah, like I said, we'll have you back on here in the hopefully near future. Sounds good. bbnbs.net is where you can catch up with Kelly and her co-host Tim over at Beauty, the Beast, and the Bees, a genre film cast. Check it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. I also reached out to Kelly before releasing this episode to ask if she had any other links she'd like to make sure I share with you guys and gals listening out there. And uh, she gave me a link to her pierogi recipe. So there will be a link to that as well. And, uh, you know, it is vegetarian. I'm vegetarian. And I really like pierogies, so... You know, if you want to get on my good side, I'm just being, just saying. Anyway, Kelly's awesome. I really enjoyed having her on the show. She's somebody that I don't have on the show often enough. So, Kelly, thank you for making the time. And we'll have you back on again sooner rather than later. Okay? And, hey, you know what? It came up in the conversation with Kelly, the movie The Uninvited, starring Ray Milland. Well, check this out if you're in the Portland, Oregon area. October 19th and 20th, it's showing at the Hollywood Theater. I'm going to do my best to be there. It's happening on Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. If you're going to go, let me know which day you'll be going, because that might help me decide which day I'm going to go. You know? Unearthly takes you into horror beyond imagination. Starring John Carradine, a mad menace to humanity, as the scientist possessed by a passion to remake people. Allison Hayes, the beauty slated to be his next victim. Now, my dear, tell me what's bothering you. I don't know, Doctor. I'm just frightened all the time. You mustn't be afraid, not of anything. I want you to have absolute confidence in me. Trust me implicitly. I have found out how now to add to the 16 existing glands a 17th. Artificially developed a new gland. What this gland does to this blonde beauty when it's electrolyted into her body is an experience in horror almost unbelievable. Now listen, you and Grace take the main road into town. Remember, stay in the shadows till you're clear of the house. searched for a unique way whereby a motion picture audience can actually decide the climax of a picture. I have found such a way. My latest picture, Mr. Sodonicus, offers something no audience has ever had before. The power to determine the fate of a character on the screen. The power 
to punish. In ancient Rome, spectators could decree life or death to a gladiator by indicating thumbs up or thumbs down. During the French Revolution, the mobs could condemn a man by merely shouting to the guillotine. In the early West, vigilantes took the law into their own hands. Today, for the first time, the awful power to punish will be yours. After you see the evil events that made Mr. Sardonicus what he was, you will decide what should be done to him. You will now see some scenes from the picture. The face of Mr. Sardonicus will not be shown because I realize that some people in this audience might be adversely affected by it. Those of you who come to see Mr. Sardonicus will understand why. Mr. Sardonicus. What makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus? Why were you frightened? Uh, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear? If you do not heal him, he will punish me. Surely he wouldn't beat you. His cleverness knows a more hideous torture. What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds form the fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus, can be described only in the eyes of its beholders. Mr. Sardonicus. In spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for being along for the ride for this one. Terror in the Wax Museum was a fun film to watch and an even more fun film to talk about with Kelly Hogamum. So, Kelly, thank you. Big thanks to Professor Frenzy for providing yet another chilling bedtime story. Please check out the Professor Frenzy show over at ProfessorFrenzy.com. Of course, Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories is copyright Jerry Green. And big thanks to Kenny for providing another really cool look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And yeah, I know. 
There are so many movies I haven't covered yet. I'll get to them all, I'm sure. If you want to learn more about anything that we've talked about here on the show, again, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to want to go. That is the place to be. You're going to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter, and you're going to find our contact information. We have an email address set up at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and a voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Are. Now, speaking of the email and the voicemail, I've received some listener feedback. I'm going to sit on them right now because I'm really hoping that Brenda's feeling well enough to join me in a future episode really, really soon. And we'll go over the email and kind of check in with her, see how she's doing and go from there. I did receive a video from the Gillibration. I don't know how to incorporate it into Monster Kid Radio yet. I may just end up posting it to the website for people to see, but it looks really cool. Man, I wish I could have been there. You know, what I need to do is develop like a, a mutant superpower, like multiple man, like Jamie Madrox, where I can just kind of separate and go experience different things at the same time. So I could have been at Rose City Comic Con and the Gillibration last weekend and then eventually come back together as if I had had both experiences simultaneously. I'm, my comic book nerd is showing. Sorry. But yeah, we'll have some feedback coming up in a future episode, which means that if you want to hear your feedback, an email or a voicemail from you incorporated into a future episode of Monster Kid Radio, well, you know what you got to do. You write us or call us. I mean, that's how it works. We do have Amazon links set up for some of the various things that we've talked about in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, including my book. Thank you to everybody who supported me by purchasing a copy of Monster Hunter for Hire. Volume 1 of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files series. There will be more Mark Temple stories coming up. I do have a quote-unquote publishing plan in place. You will see some more Mark Temple stuff in 2020. To find out what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio, you got to watch the YouTube video that I put together. Coming to Monster Kid Radio September 2019. Next week is the last episode of September 2019. So if you want to know what's coming up, well, you got to watch the video. Watch to the end, and you'll see who's going to be on and what movie we're going to be talking about. Speaking of which, if you are a YouTube user, please consider subscribing to the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel and liking the videos on the channel that you watch. I can't think of anything else to say, so I'm just going to go ahead and wrap up by reminding you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, Unported License. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk with everybody next week. Ciao.